The Energy Gang is brought to you by Rena Sola, a tier one solar cell and module manufacturer with a decade of experience in the clean tech industry. Renasola is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. The company is now offering a bundled solution for residential installers looking to reduce procurement costs and drive down the cost of projects. Call 415-570-2647 to find your local representative or go to renasola.us. For the week of May 21st, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. I am your host, Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C., as usual. Welcome to the show. Use any buzz phrase you want Utility 2.0, the utility of the future, or the spiral of distributed, disruptive, transformative innovation. They all convey the same thing. Power companies are facing structural changes to the way they sell electricity. This week, we're joined by an expert who's tracking those changes. We'll get an update on how utilities and regulators are dealing with them in states ahead of the curve, and things really are moving. Then, is Yingli Solar, the world's second biggest solar manufacturer, in big trouble? Finally, we have more details on why New York banned fracking. Joining me from New York himself is my co-host, Jigger Shah, the president of Generate Capital. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Lisa and I have been friends for years, and so I'm really happy to have her on. Indeed. And in Washington, D.C., it's Catherine Hamilton, a partner with 38 North Solutions, also tracking a lot of the same stuff that Lisa is. So I'm sure there's going to be a great conversation here this week. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. I'm actually taping from my home in Arlington because it was early enough in the morning for our taping that uh, there were kids to get to different places. And we are recording earlier in the morning, which means I've got a lot of activity outside my window and some construction. So if you hear any background noise, I apologize for that. Our guest this week hails from the Boston area. Like Catherine, she's been actively tracking and even participating in some of the regulatory proceedings around rethinking the structure of utilities. And we're going to get an update from her today. It is Lisa Francis, the Senior VP of Strategy at Advanced Energy Economy. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. I don't know about you, but I have buzzword burnout on this subject. <laughs> it's hard to get it's you know it's 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 hard to get around the buzzwords. I'm curious is there a phrase that you use to talk about the changes to the utility business model and are there any that really bother you? Um well, I certainly use the one the 21st century electricity system because that's uh, what we've been using at Advanced Energy Economy, but I've certainly heard Everything from utility 2.0 to utility of the future. I mean, there's nothing really that's rubbed me the wrong way yet. I kind of get it all, but uh, we're kind of sticking with the 21st century electricity system because I think it's more than just the utility. I think it's really about the whole power system and, you know, other things that are going to be able to be linked into it. Yeah, it's a fantastic way to describe it. And in fact, the buzzwords are usually uh, effective, but when they're used over and over again, that's when they get... Uh a little annoying. But anyway, to, to preface our conversation about this subject, I thought it would be helpful to get a sense for how you're tracking and defining the technologies that are causing this shift to the 21st century grid in the first place. Advanced energy economy has this broader definition of what it calls advanced energy. Um, what do you include under that umbrella and how big is the market? Sure. Um, it, you know, we come up with this annual report, which is our market report, which includes both the demand side and the supply side uh, that we're defining as part of the advanced energy sector. And that includes 
seven key segments. It's uh, building efficiency, transportation, industrial efficiency on the demand side, and then on the supply side, things like electricity generation, fuel production, fuel delivery, electricity delivery, and electricity management. So it's, it's broad, but it represents uh, in a $200 billion market in the United States. So it's not at all insignificant. This, this is as big as the airline industry. It's equal to pharmaceuticals, and it's almost as big as uh, consumer electronics. So we're talking about a very large market segment. Um, it grew 14% in 2014, and it's you know five times the rate of growth of the U.S. overall economy. So it's quite large. And I think, frankly, if the utility business models can get right, I think we have a huge opportunity ahead of us in this sector. So let's ask how we get it right. Everyone's focused on New York, where the state has made it through the first track of this utility reformation process called reforming the energy vision. Um, The concept of, of how to create a more open market for distributed resources is still a bit mushy, but it's coming together what what do we know about the process thus far? What's been established since it really got underway last year? Well, I think, you know, obviously New York, I, I perceive it as probably the single most comprehensive proceeding out there on this topic. And if you want, Steve and I can focus a little bit on what came out of the track one order now, if you'd like. Yeah. Because um, I think some key things fell out of that. And we're very much in line with uh, advanced energy economies comments that we filed as part of the proceedings. So we, we were pleased because there was a lot of alignment with the final track one order. Uh, the, the first thing I think is one is that they position the utility as the DSP or the distributed system platform. So the utility now would be responsible for managing and running the new uh, distributed energy resource markets that have been contemplated with REV. And, you know, I think our position was, and I know that was even controversial with a lot of folks, but we think it's the right path to help accelerate things moving forward, have the utilities be part of it. But they certainly have to meet certain performance metrics. You know, otherwise we feel, and I think the commission felt as well, that an independent operator could come and take over essentially and run and manage the DSP if the utilities didn't meet some of their targets. Lisa, I hope you see some of my fingerprints on there. You and I have been laughing and arguing <laughs> about this since 1999. Absolutely, Jigger. I figured as much. I don't uh, trust the utilities as far as I can throw them. I absolutely think they're going to delay this process to the point of having to be replaced. Well, I hope that's not the case, but I think that's why we added in and we were encouraging um, the commission, too, to consider this performance metric requirement because I think if we get it right, actually, there's a lot of ways that the utilities can actually benefit to win in this. You know, there could be a real win-win if this is done right and rolls out correctly. So I'm hoping that we could all put forward our best feet on this to make sure that uh, everybody's going to be able to win something and make this something that's going to really be a success story for the rest of the states. One of the interesting things that came out of track one is that the utilities are not going to be able to own assets on the customer side of the meter. Is that correct? Or is there a certain cap? That's right. So another piece that we advocated for and that came out of the track one order is around DER ownership. So regulated utilities now, uh, it's going to be extremely limited in the amount of DER that they can actually own. I think the track order specifically specified that the regulated utilities can only own storage on utility property. So frankly, I think the commission went further than we even did in our comments in terms of restricting uh, DER ownership on the customer side of the meter. So, Lisa, 
I'd love to get into more details, but I want to ask you a couple of macro questions first. I mean, you have been at the forefront of advising utilities for the past 15 years, I think, on DER issues, but also renewables and RPSs and things like that. Um, And I'm curious, you know, the electric utility industry has a long history of paying consultants like Navigant and, you know, PwC, Accenture, others. Mm -hmm. I just don't see them paying them for advice in this area. I mean, it's not clear to me that the utilities even have the knowledge base necessary to negotiate fairly in these proceedings. You know, when I talk to my friends in the consulting community, I don't think they've got $200 million worth of engagements from utilities right now in this area. Well, you know, putting my Navigant hat on, you know, when I was in that role, actually we got quite a lot of business from the utilities looking at these kind of issues and looking at what business models utilities could actually engage in, um, you know, in the solar sector. You know, is it doing O&M? Is it doing um, leasing systems? Is it partnering with third-party providers? I think they've actually spent quite quite a bit of money looking at the different options because they know as well as everybody else does that DER is coming. You know, the question is, what's the utility role in that future? And I think right. they've, they've all been thinking about it and hiring consultants to look at that very issue. But that's yeah, on solar, I, right? I mean, I, I guess I'm primarily curious, solar. but I'm curious about, do you think the board of Con Ed and National Grid actually know what they're signing up to in the REV? I think they certainly have a lot of resources that they're putting in it. Uh, you know, Con Ed has a whole group now, uh, you know, led by Stu Nakmius and Serge, um, and they've had a whole team below them specifically targeted toward utility of the future. So they have a whole organizational structure that's dealing with this, and they've been hiring consultants to do some of the analysis on the benefit-cost framework and other things as well. So they're, they're, they're seriously looking at this. I don't think they're taking it lightly by any means. Yeah, and I think that they are really looking at stake, asking stakeholders, how do we do this? Trying to get the folks who are really out there trying to compete for some of these services to really help them come up with, you know, how do we define who benefits from all of this so that everybody's business model works in the end? And I, and Lisa, it would be great to hear a little bit about some of the demonstration work that's going on to try to sure. do on a micro level to figure out operationally, how does this work? But then also from the business model perspective, how's it all going to shake out? You know, I think this is also an area on the track one order where the utilities have been directed to engage third parties in demonstrations. And we pushed for that in our comments that we filed with our members as well. And, you know, frankly, I think a great example is the Brooklyn Queens Demand Management Program. It's a start, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg, but I think it gives an indication about what's likely to be unfolding in REV. And I think it makes something more tangible that people can relate to of what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, so can here you explain what that is to our listeners? Yeah, so what it is is they're, of, you know, they're trying to avoid $1 billion in distribution system upgrade costs. And uh, the commission has authorized Con Ed to spend up to $200 million on non-wires solutions. So, in other words, distributed energy resources. Um, and if they meet some performance targets, like certain megawatts of solar or cost-effectiveness, or if they you know, engage third-party participation and meet some of those targets, they'll get 100 basis points adder uh, for doing the right thing. And so, ultimately, here you'll have you know, an avoiding $1 billion investment in this distribution system upgrade by putting in DER and other non-wire solution charges that may be the more traditional route to go. So, uh, you know, I, I 
people are pretty excited about it. I think, you know, we'll have to see how successful it will be rolling out, but I think it's a great first start and I think it lets people understand kind of what they're trying to achieve. So they're not, New York is not trying to focus on technology issues as much as they are business model changes to change the revenue flow into the utility and help them get additional revenue to help deal with some of the issues that they've got coming on with the aging infrastructure and, you know, the declining and flat load growth that they're seeing out there with their kilowatt hour sales. A really compelling piece of this to me is what we're going to do with the data, what data we're going to make Mm -hmm. available from the utilities and from the technology vendors and installers themselves, right? So the people who are deploying distributed energy want a lot of data from the utility on, you know, outage data, capacity Mm -hmm. levels, um, equipment performance, um, interconnection data, that sort of thing. And the utilities want more information about customer usage Mm -hmm. and system performance from the, the installers. And this is what their folks are trying to hash out in California and in, certainly in track one in New York. Mm-hmm. What do we know about what the utilities and the vendors are willing to share and give mm-hmm. up? And what are some of the sticky situations in terms of privacy that uh, we're dealing with? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, at this, we, we spent a lot of time on this particular question and issue. You know, it was very important to our members who wanted access to real-time customer data from the utilities that they have because it just helps them develop more innovative products and services. And in the meetings we had with the utilities, I have to say there was pushback on some of that and because I think they just were concerned about the volume of data that's out there and how do you manage that or package it to make it useful. Um, and, And it was a bit of a contentious issue. And I think you know, I think where the track one order came out is that they focused on system data relative to customer data, and they stated that the utility should make the data available at a level of granularity and on a time scale that fits with market requirements and that facilitates third-party facilitation and participation. They really didn't take a stand uh, much on the customer data in any detail, but I think They did identify that the utilities could charge for data packaged with the analysis. And I think those are the kinds of things that came up in some of our meetings with the utilities where they were getting, you know, I don't want to use the word excited, too much excited, but they they did see that, you know, if they could take the data, package it in a way that was useful to third parties, then they might be able to consider that sort of value-added services that they could charge a premium to a third party wanting that information. Yeah, so, no, I've been begging them to provide some of their credit data, for instance. I mean, the utilities have credit profiles on every one of their customers, which they haven't yet been you know, been selling to the solar industry and others. And are the technology providers, the software providers, the, the installers, are they hesitant to give up some of their customer-level data? I think it depends on, on what that is and, you know, what they're going to be getting for it as well. I mean, I think they just want things to be fair. You know, so if the utilities are going to charge for some of that data, they should have the same right to do the same thing uh, back to the utilities. Yeah, Lisa, it strikes me um, as ironic that in in an attempt to really open up the market to competition, it requires a lot of regulatory guidance uh-huh. and a lot of regulatory process. But I also think that there is a huge impetus for this to be successful 
And so I'm glad to see the demo project going, you know, happening because that's one way to test some of the business models. But I don't think anybody there in New York, all of the businesses that have flocked to the States, all of the groups that are there working hard to try to make this work, nobody wants this to fail so that they'll all have to go to Hawaii. Um, So it, it just seems like everybody is trying to move together in the right down the right path. Do you see that happening? Do you, do you see people coming together to try to make I, it work? I, I absolutely do. I mean, just the fact that they've had, you know, close to 300 stakeholders in some of these initial meetings around Rev, I think shows that people know that this is a, a good market. And I think people are excited about the opportunities. I think people know that the current business models aren't necessarily going to work moving forward as these more innovative technologies come into the marketplace as you move more toward two-way power flow, you know, from the consumer site back to the utility. It's no longer about one-way power flow just from the power plant to the end-user customer. And I, people see that there are limitations. You know, we, we, we haven't changed the way the utilities do business in over 100 years. And the technology is moving at such a fast clip that we need to – the regulation has to basically catch up to where the technology and the innovation is. And I think people get – and are excited about it in New York, and they realize that a lot of eyes are on New York. And, you know, to do it right could have a lot of implications for some of the other states. And I don't want to put all the attention on New York because there are, you know, states that are also, like California is doing a lot of good things, and we could talk about that if you want. Yeah, the environment is just so rich in New York. We could stay on that state all day. But (laughs) I did want to move over to to California because – uh, of course, under AB 327, the the large investor-owned utilities are required to put together a comprehensive distributed energy procurement plan and to start releasing more data about how the distribution system is operating. And, and going back to my earlier question about data sharing, share that with many of the other distributed energy providers. And so, you know, we're dealing with some sticky issues in California, and we have a deadline coming up for many of those plans in mm-hmm. July 1st, I believe. So what's going on in California that maybe mirrors New York or that it's unique to that state? Because it's a little bit less comprehensive than what New York has been doing. That's right. And I think that's an excellent way to put it, Steve. And I think the New York is probably taking a much more comprehensive view. And I, and, you know, I think, frankly, they're coming to a similar point of view in terms of the utility of the future, like New York, but from a different direction is the way I would kind of put it. I think utility of the future activities are sort of almost a natural evolution in California that's stemming from a lot of the long-time pursuit they've had there of energy efficiency and renewables. So they've got a lot of the pieces in place, and they're focusing on a lot of separate dockets that are out there, you know, around distribution resource plans, around tariff structures. So, you know, they're being driven, I think, by different drivers in California as well. You know, they've got a lot of imminent issues that they have to deal with around large amounts of renewable integration that are taking place on their grid, kind of like Hawaii, but a different technology mix. Um, And so they've been moving forward to address it. But probably more, I would, I think, from my perspective, California's been a bit more focused on technology and locational benefits of DER and and thinking about how you're going to evolve rate reform and different revenue streams and rate composition changes. Lisa, the the politics of this is really important to me because I want to understand why things happen and when they happen. You know, I think in New York, things really happened because of Hurricane Sandy. I think the governor was given the right to basically put in new commissioners who were committed to this vision, right? I mean, I don't think that we can actually justifiably give credit to PV for 
this particular vision. He was clearly open to technology, but he wasn't necessarily open to business model change. That's um, right. So California wasn't really open to that. Hawaii, we sort of forced them into business model change by, by fundamentally undermining the utility. But I, I, I'm just like trying to figure out, like Massachusetts, I don't think is really on track. I mean, NSTAR, you know, now they have a different name, but they're Eversource, they're, yeah, Eversource. They're so powerful. I mean, I don't think you're going to be able to get business model change there. I mean, clearly in Arizona, where the utility pays off ACC commissioners, I don't think you're going to get that uh-huh. kind of change. Well, Massachusetts is addressing grid modernization in a more limited form than New York, uh, but they're focusing on key things like advanced metering and time-varying rates, where, frankly, I think they're moving faster than New York, which is exciting. Um, and the mass, they're requiring the utilities to roll out advanced metering functionality that's subject to the cost-benefit analysis within the next five years. And once they've got the advanced metering, they're going to require them to offer time-varying rates by default. Uh, which is a big deal because the time-varying rates, I think, are a critical part of engaging customers and getting them more involved in managing their energy use. And in contrast, uh, mandatory time-varying rates are illegal in New York. And it's, it's unclear, frankly, how the New York PSC will address this. So in Massachusetts, too, we're kind of waiting at this point for the utility plans. Uh, the key deadline is August 5th. This summer, um, each electric distribution company has to submit their 10-year grid mod plan as part of the proceeding, and all these plans have to incorporate sort of a short-term plan that outlines their expected capital investments and their rollout of advanced metering functionality across the state. So they've got pieces of it they're being very aggressive on, which is exciting, Um, and there are other parts of it where they're not seeing the bigger picture. So... You know, it's exciting to see what all these different states are doing because they're all doing different elements of it. And one thing we're doing at AEE is we, we've been bringing together some of the leading NGOs and academics and consultants. We just had an event in D.C. a couple of weeks ago just to figure out what everybody's doing, figure out where there's synergies, figure out where the gaps are and what still needs to be done. Because I think, that, frankly, the hardest part is still ahead of us. A lot of the analysis that needs to be done on this to deal with the rate design issues and the revenue streams and how this might impact Wall Street, you know, and all those key issues. Yeah, and and not to throw in a whole other metric, but this summer the final rule of EPA's Clean Power Plan will be issued and states Mm -hmm. will have to now launch into coming up with their state implementation plans. And I would think states like New York, Massachusetts, California – Hawaii are going to be positioned because they're changing all of their regulatory constructs and business models will be positioned to then be able to kind of parlay those into their clean power plan implementation. It's a great point. And you also brought up another point about the questions around revenue as well, Lisa, and and what happens to Wall Street investors. So will these utilities be forced to strand many of their assets? What would that do for Wall Street investors worried about risk? Mm-hmm. Are they worried about tech, uh, utilities taking technology risks themselves as they invest in these projects? Is the revenue stream big enough from yeah. DER to make up for the change to their business model? And that's still an unanswered question. No, Stephen, I, I frankly think... To me, those are the key questions I'm currently struggling with with our group and our team. And I think we're, you know, we're thinking, frankly, right now of creative ways to get a jump start on some of those. You know, we've got, you know, an RFI on the street now where we're going to be hiring a consultant to look at some of these issues. But you know, I also want to begin engaging much more the financial sector because I think they haven't been actively part of some of these discussions, and I think it's going to be critical because, like you said. Um, 
you know, is, if this is perceived as riskier or that they're stranded assets, what's that going to do to the, the credit ratings and, you know, the cost of capital and, you know, things that matter to shareholders. So I don't think the utility companies are going to be able to hoodwink people this time around. I mean, they did a great job in the late 90s. But when you look at what, you know, they did in California where they built the Sunrise Power Link that nobody needed, they built a ton of natural gas capacity that now we're realizing was not fully utilized. My sense is that the the NGOs are far smarter than they were last time around, and they're not going to let the utilities get away with 20, 30, 40 billion dollars worth of rate basing just to like, you know, get out ahead of this um this trend change. Yeah, and that's and frankly that's why I think there has to be some creative thinking about the revenue streams, you know, and you know, Stephen asked the question, you know, are, will these value-added services that now the utilities could hopefully charge a premium for, can they fill some of the gap that's going to be out there relative to some potential stranded assets and the money that the utilities would have potentially made earning a regulated rate of return on those assets? You know, those are, those are questions I think that, frankly, I haven't seen the answer to, and I, it's in the back of my mind. Lisa Francis is the Senior VP of Strategy at Advanced Energy Economy. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Great discussion. We'll have to get an update with you as the other tracks unfold and more states adopt this stuff. I look forward to it, and thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed talking with all of you again. Let's get a word in here about our sponsor, Renasola. Renasola has been manufacturing solar panels since 2008, but the company is also a major distributor. Renasola is now offering bundled equipment solutions as part of its distribution business. The company produces solar panels, inverters, and racking systems, and puts them all together to help you make your operations more efficient. Think about the savings in procurement and shipping costs you could realize by choosing Renasola's bundled offerings for residential systems. And think about the time you could save as well. Renasola has coast-to-coast warehouses across the U.S. and 40 global subsidiaries. Call 415-570-570. 2647 to find your local rep today or go on over to renasola.us. The market turmoil that destroyed so many solar manufacturers has mostly calmed down, but success is still not guaranteed, of course, even for those at the top. The latest company to fall into trouble is Yingli Solar, a vertically integrated Chinese solar manufacturer that also happens to be the second biggest in the world. It was recently the biggest in the world before getting overtaken by Trina last year. Yingli released its annual report last Friday after U.S. markets closed, and the company had delayed release for weeks, causing speculation about what might be in it, and now we know what. It is not good. With mounting debt and a third consecutive year of losses, Yingli issued a warning to investors about its ability to continue financing operations. So how bad are things really for the company? Jigger, what did you uh, make of this warning? Quote, our substantial indebtedness and net loss may adversely affect our business, financial condition, and result, uh, and results of operations, as well as our ability to meet our payment obligations. What do you read into that? Well, I think that these types of warnings are pretty regularly provided by Ying Lee and some of the other folks. So I'm not sure that that but was... not quite like this. I know, but I, I don't think that's the part that I'm most concerned about. I, you know, I think that the bigger trend is... There's a couple of things. One is there's a huge curse around being number one in the solar industry. You know, it's sort of like, um, you know, pioneers get a lot of arrows in their back is sort of the phrase. And my sense is, is that Yingli spent too much money to be number one. 
And now Trina is spending too much money to be number one. Um, and I absolutely think that they're in trouble. But, but the other thing I think both Trina and Yingli have done a really poor job of is, um, is diversifying into projects. And so I think when you see the manufacturers who've been the most successful, they, is that they've actually diversified into investing in securing their own pipeline. Think people like SunPower, First Solar, Canadian Solar, others. And I think that, I just think that these pure play module manufacturers, they're really just a commodity business. It's really hard to see how they make a solid rate of return on investment. Well, that's a really interesting piece of this story because Yingli has attempted to diversify into a downstream solar development business. It, it said in its annual report that it has uh, about a gigawatt and a half of projects in the pipeline for China and a few hundred megawatts of projects outside China. But this China piece is creating some dilemmas for Yingli because many of its projects actually got delayed due to interconnection problems and um, and subsidy issues. And so what you see is that you have this pretty big pipeline within China, but the company has delayed projects by months, and the business has been hurt because of that. And it's it's failed to ramp up that business as quickly as it wanted to. So it has moved into downstream solar development, yeah, but it's been but stymied by the conditions in China. Yeah, but that doesn't count. I mean, I think that, Why like, that you know, count? project project development in China is basically a way to dump panels, right? So if you've got panels you can sell in the U.S. or Japan or other places where you make real money, it's great. If you've got excess panel supply that you don't know where else to put, you put it in China. It's not like China... The domestic market is not a high margin market for them. So, so the fact that they have local projects is not really a big thing. You look at someone like Canadian Solar, which is a Chinese company. You know they've got a very large portfolio in um, in Canada, and then they've now you know recently purchased um, what's that company in uh, you know Arno Harris's company uh, Recurrent. Uh, Recurrent. So, so I mean they're making really big moves. Yingli's. Dabbling outside of China, and then they've got a pipeline in China. That's, that doesn't count. So I don't have numbers in front of me, but our in talking to our analysts, they did point specifically to Yingli as a company that had tried to branch into the MENA market, into Latin America, and into some of the emerging markets that it has done a bit more than dabble, and it, it sees potential in some of those emerging markets that, that the other Chinese sol- vertically integrated companies haven't pursued as uh, aggressively. Look, I mean, if you're saying that they're a top 20 project developer, I'm happy to argue with you about it. If you're not, then they're doing dabbling. It, I mean, it's a pretty clear thing. First Solar, Sun Power, Canadian Solar are viewed as top 20 project developers. Yingli is not. Yeah, it, didn't, it sounded to me like they just took on too much debt and they did all the short-term borrowing that they can't meet um, and they're not going to be able to get additional financing because of that. So it sounded like they were making kind of bad and in, bad investment choices um, and that the, the market is still going to remain healthy. Yeah, $2 billion in debt and counting. And uh, I, I will go back to your earlier statement, Jigger, that companies make warnings like this all the time. And that is true. There are, of course, those boilerplate warnings that you see in any uh, – filed documents. But in 2013, Yingli did say, in our opinion, our working capital is sufficient for our present requirements. And the warnings in the 2014 document were far worse. And they did not. Yeah, they did not have any positive assurances for investors. They basically said, yep, we're worried about financing our operations. And this could be bad. Yeah, but I think to Catherine's point, I just want to make sure it's clear how this stuff works, right? So for module manufacturers, they need about 80% 
they run their business such that if they sell off 80% of their capacity, then they break even. So for every percentage point that they're above 80% is when they actually start making money. Um, and so for people like Yingli and Trina and others who try to be number one and number two, um, what they're trying to do is to run their plants at full capacity and then they, you know, make more profits. Um, but to do that, sometimes they have to give away panels or reduce prices or do whatever to be able to maintain market share. I think this number one curse really is real. I think it happened to Sharp when they were number one, Q-Cells when they were number one, and you know now SunTech and then Trina and Yingli. Um, it's much better for these solar manufacturers if they were able to hold the line on their pricing and not fight so much for market share like Yingli has. Um, and really try to achieve profitability. And that means they have to actually reduce the amount of investment that they're making into new capacity. And so this debt really comes from new capacity that Yingli paid for to try to be number one, as opposed to what they should have done is really just focused on profitable growth. Yep, indeed. And maybe they shouldn't have sponsored the World Cup. <laughs> yeah, although that was cool to see a solar company. Yeah, it was. The World Cup. <laughs> Not sure how much business it gave them, though. <laughs> That's a hard one to track. What did you make of Hanergy's losses? This is, of course, a very secretive Chinese company that has bought up so many different solar properties, has an incredibly inflated stock price, uh, but that after the Yingli news, lost tens of billions of dollars. I think it was $18 billion in value overnight as investors uh, realized they didn't know why the company was valued so highly. Do you think it was a market reaction to Yingli, first of all? And then no. Hanergy is a pretty secretive company with sketchy accounting practices and so many businesses that nobody understands what exactly they're doing. Well, just to be clear about what Hanergy did, right? They bought up every single Silicon Valley thin film company that went bankrupt. Um, and put them into one company. So I'm not sure that that was actually creating value, but sort of is what it is. Then they said the thin film's going to be great. And then since the beginning of this year, their stock price has actually doubled or tripled. Um, so they basically created this huge run-up, which no one knew why that run-up was occurring. Their chairman declined to actually attend their annual meeting on Wednesday um, in Hong Kong. And so people were like, hey, wait a second. How is the chairman of the company not coming to the to the to the annual meeting, and that's when their stock price crashed. Look, this whole thing was a bubble to begin with. To suggest for a moment that Hanergy was worth like six times more than First Solar is ridiculous. Yeah, it's so hard to trust how accurate some of these numbers that Chinese companies are putting out are, and sort of where the Chinese government begins and the company ends. But this may end badly for Yingli if the company can't raise any more money to finance its operations because the Chinese government said it's going to step back and allow some providers, some manufacturers to go bankrupt or encourage M&A activity. So Yingli may not have the support of the Chinese government that it once might have. It's true. It's true. We could do with a lot less, um, you know, a lot fewer players in the Chinese manufacturing space. We'll go back to New York State for our third story now. Last December, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced that his administration would ban fracking in the state. And now we have more details on why. After seven years, New York has finally issued a 2,000-page environmental assessment on the controversial drilling technique, citing methane pollution, local air pollution, drinking water impacts, earthquakes, and infrastructure costs as the reasons for proposing the ban. 
We'll know within a week if the ban officially goes into effect, but it looks like it will. Uh, that is not permanent. A, another administration could overturn it, but it is very significant. Jigger, I know you've uh, been supportive of, of the ban on fracking in New York. Anything specific in this report that backs up your stance? Well, I, you know, look, I think that there are a lot of people who believe the world works on logic, and there was a lot of logic in this report. But, you know, really, this was a political um, push in New York. I mean, a couple of my friends own wineries in the Finger Lakes region of New York. They organized a lot of their constituencies, really lobbied hard to make sure this ban went into place because they were worried about their livelihoods there. And at the same time, you've got Harold Hamm, um, you know, trying to convince folks in Oklahoma to fire academics who are saying negative things about the impact of fracking on the 20 earthquakes a day sometimes that they get in Oklahoma. So it's one of those things where, um, you know, is fracking fundamentally a bad technology? I don't think so. But are there higher risks because of the amount of fracking we're doing right now from small startup companies? Yes. And, you know, Oklahoma goes one way and New York goes the other way. Catherine, what's the significance of the report here? It's been seven years in the making. The ban has been widely criticized by the gas industry as putting fear over facts. But this report is one of the most extensive we've seen on drilling impacts. Yeah, I mean, the issue is that there were fine, there were actual public health findings on air, climate, um, drinking water and surface water, surface spills, earthquakes, community impacts. So they found all they they came to all these findings, and so the issue is. You know, are they going to when they make this decision, which should be, as you say, very soon, um, you know, what's going to happen? Or is there going to be another court case to appeal it? And it looks like there was this group, the Joint Landowners Coalition of New York, which were 15 New York towns that, as opposed to the group that Jigger's talking about, threatened to secede to Pennsylvania um, if they 70,000 landowners, if they weren't allowed to have fracking there. And now, remember, this is a pretty depressed area and the residents are offered money to for people to, to dig wells on their property. And so for some people, this would be an economic boon, at least short term. Um, I don't think that group can afford to take this to court. You know, they're looking at can industry do this? I don't know if industry is going to want to step up and do it in New York because the politics are, are pretty bad right now. The second option that they could do is do a regulatory takings claim against the state for diminishing their property value. Again, I don't know how that would be able to to hold water, so to speak, either. Um, so I think in New York, this is one of those things that it's this is going to stick. Now, the issue is, are those findings significant enough for it to take into a larger context beyond New York? So if you remember our conversation from way back, gosh, it might have been almost two years ago now when we reviewed Gasland 2, and we had Abram Lustgarden of ProPublica on the show, and we we asked him and we, we talked about how many of these impacts were anecdotal and how many of them were structural, were proven from a scientific perspective and widespread enough that they weren't just happening in small pockets. And he wasn't ready to make that judgment yet, but he did say that the anecdotes were really adding up and we're still waiting on this massive study from the EPA uh, that won't be out until about 2016, and God knows if they'll even hit that date. But while we wait for a more comprehensive scientific study, we have some individual academic studies, and we have this meta-study from New York that's seven years in the making and really does show that local environmental impacts and climate impacts of natural gas uh, is something to be worried about. So I don't find myself to be an anti-fracking guy 
But when you see a report like this, it goes to show you that there really is a, some structural issues associated with fracking, and these are not just small pockets of problems. Yeah, and I think what it's going to lead to eventually is a need to regulate the industry so that the small players don't kill it, you know, so that I mean, regulation in this case would be good because then there would be rules that everybody would have to follow. Um, it would pres- hopefully preserve the environment, but also allow people who are supposedly doing it right to be able to ha- have business. But again, this is, you're using logic. This is about politics, right? I think when you look at the the you know the fracking regulations that came out of the EPA the EDF was you know um, essential in watering down. It doesn't bode well for you know folks in New York changing their mind. I think if those EPA regulations were tougher, um, maybe New York would reverse their decision. But you know now Maryland has actually joined the bandwagon and done a fracking um, you know postponement. And Governor Hogan you know was sort of handicapped there on, on um, you know, they had uh, veto-proof majorities out of both parts of the legislature. Well, I'm terrified for Virginia because in my, where my brother lives down in the Southeast, they just um, voted to, to allow fracking and all of their farms down there are spring fed. And, uh, you know, I know that the landowners are terrified that this is going to actually bring down their property. I'm curious, Jigger. So you believe that natural gas should be used for transportation and to a lesser extent, pieces of the electricity system. If that's the case, we're going to need to keep fracking and fracking more in in various states. Um, Would you want drilling operations for it in your own state if you believe that natural gas is an important piece of the energy mix? Uh, How do you deal with uh, not wanting it locally but recognizing that it's a resource that we need? No, I I mean, I don't mind having it locally. I think that when I was at BP, we used to frack all the time. I mean, fracking is fine. It just has to be done by quality companies with a quality track record and who are paying the right amount of money to do all of the safety that's necessary to do it properly. And, you know, just by the way, most of the natural gas in this country, you know, still comes from traditional wells. It's not like fracking is 90% of all the frack gas or, or the gas supply in the country. So we still have a lot of traditional natural gas that's that's coming out. And I think um, the, the challenge is since 2009, Wall Street has provided $200 billion of hot money to this industry. And anybody with a geology degree was able to raise um, junk bonds to be able to fund their fracking dreams. And so we have a lot of weird companies out there. And that's what David Einhorn was talking about in the Greenlight Capital presentation he made, What was that you know there's just a lot of riffraff. And I think if the regulations were stronger, I'd feel fine having it in my own yard. Howard Zucker, the uh, health department commissioner last December, had this quote, would I live in a community with high volume fracking based on the facts I have now? Would I let my child play in the school field nearby or my family drink the water from the tap or grow their vegetables in the soil? After looking at the plethora of reports, as you see behind me and others I have in my office, the answer is no. Um, I just have one more question. Why the hell did they call it the final supplemental generic environmental impact statement? Jesus, could you make this stuff any less accessible? <laughs> exactly. We want to make sure Google can't find it. <laughs> well, but it, and it was also relative to that particular topic because I have filed comments on supplemental generic environmental impact statements on other topics. So that's just the way, those are just the words they use. Mm, those supplemental generic environmental impact statements, gotta love them. Okay, let's tell our listeners something they do not know. It is the end of the show. Catherine Hamilton, what do you got? 
Yeah, so earlier this week, I was at Wind Power in Orlando. Uh, it was a really great conference. It's always good to kind of hear what's going on in the industry. And Secretary Moniz delivered the keynote, and he mentioned at the time, announced a new report called Enabling Wind Power Nationwide. And what they've they've issued it this week, um, DOE has, and it really shows wind availability in every single state. And I think this is great because they want to unlock, uh, now that we have some new Uh, technologies that will enable folks to access wind in all states. Um, This is going to open up the Southeast as, as solar has been opened up. Um, You know, there's plenty of land and uh, I think it's pretty exciting that we can, we could see wind everywhere over the country too. Indeed. But wind of course faces many of those limitations with large industrial turbines sited near communities where they might not, not necessarily want them. And solar, of course, deals with its own NIMBY issues, but could potentially get within those communities. So as we expand further into the Northeast, into the Southeast, my guess is that the NIMBY issues will still be a major issue. Well, it'll be a red herring. I mean, the, the Southern utilities just hate off-peak power. They have so much off-peak power, it's coming out their ears. And so they don't want wind because they don't want more off-peak power. Jigger, tell us something we do not know. So on the theme of Maryland and Governor Hogan, um, you know, I think there's a lot of conversation around whether regulations are going to go backwards with uh, the surprise win of Governor Hogan. He passed a bill and um, and signed it into law to unlock community solar in Maryland this week. And so I'm, you know, hats off to him. He's doing a great job in promoting our issues. And, um, you know, that was over the outstretched uh, um, veto power of Exelon Corporation, which owns Constellation, who hates community solar at their board level. So he stood up for, for the consumer. It was great. So uh, Apple's in the middle of settling a suit with A123 Systems for poaching a lot of its top employees over the last year, including the CTO of A123, in order to build up some kind of battery unit. People are speculating on what exactly. And uh, some of the documents um, related to that suit have been released, and A123 alleges that Apple is currently developing a large-scale battery division to compete in the very same field as A123. So we, we, we have mounting evidence here that Apple may, in fact, be developing an electric car. I wouldn't call it a smoking gun by any stretch, but it adds to, to this mounting evidence that Apple might have an EV underway. Um, one Apple employee recently told Business Insider that the company is working on a product that will give Tesla a run for its money. This brings us to an earlier prediction, because Jigger, many months ago, said that he thinks Apple will acquire Tesla at some point. I can't remember if there was an actual time frame, maybe within a year, you said. But I just wanted to revisit that based on the the news and figure out if you're willing to double down on that. Um, And would you be willing to make it a bet that Tesla or that Apple will acquire Tesla? Well, I think it's a smoking tailpipe, not a smoking (laughs) gun. But but look, I mean, I'm happy to bet. You know, I think, look, I think that when you look at Tesla, they're a good company, but I don't think they've shown the ability to really sell more than 100,000 cars a year. Um, and I think Apple has shown through the Apple Watch, which I'm not going to buy, but you know, I think they've sold like 28 million units of that stuff. Like They clearly have a fan base that Tesla can't reach um, without them. And I think that Apple could probably sell 10 times as many cars than Tesla could. Do you think Apple's developing... A store, a stationary storage unit, rather than an EV battery. Is that I a doubt it. 
I doubt it. I, I mean, I think when you look at the, the reveal on Tesla's um, numbers, it shows that uh, the vast majority of the pre-sales that they talked about where they're sold out through June are commercial systems. It's not residential systems. So, in fact, Tesla was not able to get a whole bunch of people from the residential um, side to, to sign up. Okay. So what should we bet on then? Do you think it's fair to say that within a year – Apple will acquire Tesla, or should we brand, go out further? What's what's a, an appropriate time frame? You think? Well, I think it should be in the next year. In the next I just year. don't see why Apple would wait so much okay. longer. You know, I think it's Tesla's got a great car. It's got a great lineup. It just needs a better sales and marketing strategy and a better um, uh, back office. Right? That's where Tim Cook is really good is figuring out how to get costs out of manufacturing processes. Okay. So by the end of May 2016, if this does not happen, then you have to buy me a cocktail every time you see me near a bar, and I'll buy you a Manhattan if it does happen every time I see you. And I want you to buy me a Tesla. <laughs> Deal. That's what I want. The bet should be you have to switch to cricket protein bars. <laughs> I told you I <laughs> I'm love I'm vegetarian. Crickets. I can't. <laughs> you know, my, my wife and I had a big argument about this as to whether crickets are vegetarian friendly or not. I have no idea. I No, if it had a mother, then it's an animal. You can't eat it if you're vegetarian. Yeah, That's but insects are not mammals. I mean, mammals are different than insects, don't you think? I mean, they're this different kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus. I don't species. go by that. I go by did it have a mother, even if the relationship wasn't very strong. You should figure out a way to develop some language around that and pitch that as a di- as a new vegetarian diet if it has a mother. <laughs> All right. All right, well that's going to mark the end of our show. Thank you so much to our sponsor, Renesola, for supporting this show. To see Renesola's list of clean energy products and services, go to renesola.us. A quick note that we are off next week. All three of us are going to be at the same conference, the Energy Storage Association's uh, conference and expo in Dallas, Texas. But we're going to be busy enough that we're not going to be able to do a podcast, so I will have some solid filler content for you. For links to the resources in this week's show, go over to greentechmedia.com slash podcast and find us on all sorts of platforms, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and I heard this week that Spotify will soon be accepting podcasts, and I will try to get the show on there. If you like this show, pass on links to others. Turn your friends and colleagues onto the podcast. Ratings and reviews also help us find new listeners, so we're thankful to those who post them on iTunes or Stitcher or who embed the podcast in stories that they're writing. To contact us with any questions or comments, send an email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Catherine, I will see you next week in Dallas, Texas. Yeah, look forward to it. Jigger, you as well. Safe travels. Looking forward to sharing a cricket steak with you. <laughs> with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.